All right, folks, welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. Uh, this is episode 11 of the podcast, and on this episode, we sit down with Captain Billy Sandifer and Dr. David McKee. And if you're native to Texas or if you've been in Texas uh, for more than just a little while, uh, these names should not be new to your ears. These guys are, um, in my books, a couple of, as I mentioned in the podcast, a couple of, I consider them legends um, with regards to conservation in the state of Texas. I'm not going to go on into a big introduction for these gentlemen. Um, They really don't need one. And I think they do a really good job in this podcast of, of talking about themselves and growing up in Texas in the 1950s and talking about their respective careers. I do want to say, however, that um, if you have young children listening into this podcast for this particular episode, you might want to reconsider that. We get a little bit loose with the lips on, on this one, and um, I just would hate for anyone to um, have young kids hear something that their ears don't need to hear. So with that said, we're going to kick it off. And again, thank you folks for listening. We appreciate you tuning in and please feel free to share this with your friends and uh, get the word out about this podcast. All right, folks, welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. Um, I'm here with a couple of Texas legends got Dr. David McKee and Captain Billy Sandifer uh, with us here. So uh, thank you, Dr. McKee, for letting us come into your house to do this. We appreciate it. Why don't you uh, give us give it, give us your introduction? Well, uh, I'm uh, a, a native of South Texas. I grew up in Sutton, Texas, married my childhood sweetheart, still married almost 50 years. Uh, grew up with a fishing pole in one hand, a BB gun in the, in the other, uh, giving Mother Nature holy hell, trying to figure out how to make a living uh, doing what I loved. And uh, one of the things that Billy and I share is the fact that we, uh, we tarpon fished and shark fished and worked on Gulf shrimp boats. And I guess the, f- the fact that I worked on a Gulf shrimp boat convinced me I didn't want to do that for a career. So I got in college. I did that right out of high school for two years and uh, became a biologist and uh, just finished my 30 years as a professor out at uh, A&M Corpus, marine biology, mariculture. And uh, here we sit. 30 years in, in the prof- it you you brought me into A&M Corpus Christi in the mariculture program and um one thing I really liked about that program is that it, it gave you, you know, some of the the classes that you that you you took had the marine science background to it but it all the program was set up so that you actually had working knowledge of uh, you know the science behind uh marine aquaculture and uh, it was just it was just really neat to to be able to go to one of the labs in the area that, where there would be University of Texas Marine Science Institute or out at Flower Bluff to uh, work at the shrimp research facility. Um, there was just all, all that infrastructure was there for you to get that hands-on experience and and let you know real quick if you wanted to to be involved in that field because mm-hmm. if you didn't like the work you may have enjoyed the science behind it but if you didn't like the work then. Yeah. Um, 
it wasn't it wasn't gonna be for you all right uh billy why don't you tell us a little brief introduction well it's pretty simple i'm a barefooted farm boy from eight miles outside of Aldoucy, texas and uh grew up if we weren't working in the field we were fishing from the time i was about nine years old Caught my uh, first tarpon over six foot in 1961 when I was 14 years old. Uh, spent seven and a half years in the military, two and a half years as a deputy United States Marshal. Came back, went uh, shrimping in the Gulf. Thought that's what I wanted to do for a living until the bycatch became a reality to me and I couldn't uh, I couldn't relate to it and finally the end of my shrimping career was when we uh, were shrimping for white shrimp up off the beach in Matagora Island and uh, we had about 16 bull reds in the drag and very few shrimp and a whole lot of hardheads. And I told the shrimp boat captain, or I started throwing redfish back over the side while they were still alive. And the shrimp boat captain told me that I needed to get those shrimp off the deck as soon as possible. And I told him he couldn't catch enough shrimp for me to have to worry about how long it took. And uh, But anyway, that led to a, a fatal falling out. And so I uh, lived down the beach for a year and a half by myself. Just after two tours in Vietnam, I'd had about all the society I wanted. And uh, then I worked as a commercial fisherman. I worked on every kind of shrimp boat there is, bay, lagoon, topwater, uh, bottom nets the big four net rigs offshore like David did. And uh, then I became a guide on the, the guide on the Padre Island National Seashore. And I guided for 21 years. In 2012, the Veterans Administration declared me uh, disabled and curtailed my activity. So I'm a 100% disabled veteran. So I sit around here and listen to everybody's foolishness and uh, work with the Friends of Padre, which is a C3 conservation group that uh, Stephen Naylor and I started. Uh, it's eight years old now. And uh, working with this big show cleanup, which is coming up the 25th of February. We do it every year. And so that's kind of it. Money never impressed me unless I didn't have any. <laughs> you know, I mean, what was I used to have a nightmare that I'd get killed on a job and have 40 bucks in my pocket because I'd think, well, if I had 40 bucks, why was I working? Why wasn't I fishing? <laughs> so that's kind of the way it's been with me. David's been on the scientific edge of it i've studied the books some but mine has been field experience just what i learned in the field just observation mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's been a good life. I wouldn't trade with anybody. When you when you lived out uh, on the beach, that was on on pins, right? Yes, it was. And you said a year and a half. Yeah. So you you'd come to town to resupply. No. You didn't come to town at all. I didn't come to town at all. I grew up with a bunch of the kids at, on Bob Hall Pier who uh, fished the beach on weekends. So I knew most of them. And on their way back to town on Sunday afternoon, somebody had stopped by. And I'd give them some extra water cans, gas can, and a grocery list and some money. And whoever came down next would bring me supplies. So I really didn't have to come out. And there just really wasn't anything in town I wanted. So what did you do when in the in, in, in the you know, during those just really strong northerns in the winter, did you just hunker down and got awful cold. That's what I did. <laughs> uh I remember looking up at my, I remember waking up one February morning. That's when I pulled the plug and came out. And I knew I had pneumonia. And I had taken everything out of the truck and stacked it on top of me. The spare oil, cans, everything I had stacked on top of me. And uh, there were two-inch icicles on the guides on my fishing rods. And so that's when I blew it off and came back. I'd read a lot, observe a lot. I didn't fish all the time. Uh, I just lived. What What are some of the important lessons, or what are some of the things you learned about yourself out there for a year and a half? I mean, you had a lot of time just to just look inward. I mean, what are some, perhaps some, some life lessons you learned that you could share with others? Well, the most important one I learned was that society was a whole lot more messed up than I was. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, when I stayed to myself, I was in pretty good shape. I enjoyed it very much. Everybody says, you know, you didn't have any company. And I'd tell them, well, heck, I'm surrounded by my family. These birds and these critters are all my family. You know, we have the same creator. And so I talk to everything. I talk to coyotes. I talk to birds. I talk to dolphins. And uh, it, it was a nice time. I found that what I enjoy more than anything else is just being able to to survive the natural world. I love to watch all these games, shows they've got alone, and these various survival shows that they now have on TV. Yeah. I think it's cooler than that because those people all get lonesome and none of them know how to fish. (laughs) I see them trying to throw a cast net and their life depends on it. And they take that net in one hand and just sling it out there and can't figure why they're not catching anything. Well, the net shows no signs of opening whatsoever. I guess they're going to beat him to death with it. (laughs) But uh, I did everything, you know. I can vouch for the fact that coquina clam soup smells a lot better than it tastes. (laughs) 
and it takes a lot of work with a toothpick to get a meal of coquina clams, you know. I licked a coyote on the nose one time, and I found that to be maybe the greatest outdoor experience I ever had. So you've been working with this coyote for a while to, to get her to acclimate it to you? I mean, oh, you just it, didn't go up to the coyote and lick <clears> its nose, I mean. No, I, there were a mated pair, two half-grown pups, and two pups. I looked up one afternoon. Actually, I was cutting the shark's jaws up. And I looked up, and they were standing on a sand dune behind me about the 21-and-a-half mile. And uh, one of the pups howled at me. And when he did, I just howled back. And it so happened that night I caught a shark about seven-and-a-half foot long. We killed everything in those days. And I knew that the coyotes could not chew through shark skin. So I drug it up against the sand dunes, and I just ran my K-bar its entire length and opened it up at its backbone. And those coyotes set up homesteaders' rights, and they wouldn't (laughs) go anywhere. And I was catching a shark pretty regular, and they just had it made. And so it got to where the pups would come down Uh, halfway the beach from me and then the half-growns would then the female would the male never would he always stayed on the sand dunes and then one night I was asleep there wasn't any moon I slept on a cot in front of my truck uh, in front of my rod rack with all my shark rigs in it and I had a poncho pulled over the top of me and with just my head stuck out, and I, I smelt this horrible smell. And I peeked one eye open, and there was a coyote's nose right there. And it was one of those half-growns. And I'm full of mischief anyway, so <laughs> I couldn't resist. I just reached out and licked him on his nose. <laughs> and when I did, that coyote screamed. At the, he didn't howl. He screamed. <laughs> At the top of his lungs, he ran out in the surf, stuck his nose in the sand, and ran back and forth in the surf trying to wash that human smell (laughs) off his nose. And I know he got a raw nose over the deal, but he was the one that stuck it in my face. I didn't go (laughs) looking for it. So that remains, I think, my favorite memory down there. And if you ever have a chance to lick a coyote on the nose, I would really recommend it as an outdoor activity. You're definitely on a short list of people that have made that achievement. <laughs> For sure. Lily, when you moved back to civilization, didn't you uh, set up camp out here and uh, catch mullet for uh, all three or the four years in uh, town? For three or four years. Uh, Met your wife out there, as I recall. Well, I met my wife when she was 13 years old, and I was still in the military because my younger brother was married to her older sister. That's right. That's right. And, uh, but uh, I got with her about, or I started hauling her around about 1977, I guess, 78. Now, 
79. And uh, we had an old Cadillac that she called a Radillac. And she cooked in the trunk of it. And we had a little tent. And we had just moved uh, from one of the passes up here to the next during the day. And my wife could tell you she carried the bucket, and I threw the cast net. And she could tell you in, in dollars and cents or in numbers how many mullet were in that bucket. And we tried to catch $20 worth a day because that's what it taught, took to buy cigarettes, maybe a six-pack, a hamburger apiece, and gas for the car to do it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll never forget a norther came in. We were on the north side of Packery Channel where it's blocked off now as a wildlife area. And that's a lowland in there. And a norther come in during the night, and I was pretty drunk. And we woke up floating in the middle of Packery Channel. It had washed us out into the channel, and we were zipped up in the tent. So that really was a show. <laughs> so there's some interesting things. I, I remember uh, I was selling uh, mullet to Ed's bait stand out in the bluff. Jack Edwards' son-in-law was running it. Jack had died. And uh, he asked me, he said, Billy, how long have you been yellow? I said, I don't know. Am I yellow? And he said, yeah, you're yellow. And uh, so I go, okay. And... Uh, then he, sa he said, just a minute, I'm going to get the scales. And he came back with a pair of scales, and I weighed myself, and I didn't. My weight was down pretty good. He said, uh, you've got yellow jaundice. And he said, what have you been doing? What do you eat? I go, well, I ate a dozen raw oysters out of Newport Pass every day for lunch. And he goes, whoa, you don't have to go any further. And that was after Padre House was in place, that water treatment plan out there's always been a little smaller than it could be. And there's some issues with that thing. <laughs> and uh, those oysters were contaminated. And so I had to quit eating oysters. I'll tell you how different the world was. In those days, I never owned a pair of waders. And I remember apologizing when I walked into Ed's one day because when I walked in, my blue jeans were frozen. And as we chatted, they thawed out. And I was dripping water all over his floor. And I remember apologizing for wow. it, you know. It was just a, a different world. But just to get up, live the life of a hunter-gatherer, and never know who's president or what day it is, is a lot more correct than you might think. Are you, you are you from a Native American descendant? Yes. You as well, Dr. No. You're not? I had heard some stories about... Uh, yeah, McKee's more Neanderthal. Uh, some stories about the ghosts of Padre Island. Who's the man to ask on that one? Yeah, but we got to get David in this sometime. That's a good story, I think, the ghosts and the chains. And I guess we well, uh, <coughs> a young no-good named David Tuttle 
and I went down the beach on October the 15th in the late 70s in my Toyota Land Cruiser wagon to shark fish and catch bait jackfish to freeze for the winter so I'd have a good supply of jacks for the next summer. And we got into the jacks about the 28-mile marker. Water was beautiful. One of those cool, crisp October mornings. And we got to the 33-mile marker, and we came up on a school of shallow-feeding uh, sharks, about 40 of them. And... Uh, with some big bulls mixed in with the black tips. So we messed around with them for a while. And uh, then we put out a shark, we put out shark rigs. And the whole day was bizarre because I noticed every time David took a bait out, this was $12 vinyl life raft in those days, no kayaks. And, uh, David would take a bait out. We took out four or five baits. And every time he came back in, a big black tip would pick up on him at the second bar and follow him across the second gut, follow him back in. Then it would disappear. And uh, then finally I mentioned it to him, and he said he's doing the same thing to you. But we couldn't see him from the, from in the water. From in the water. And from the land he could. And so it got dark, right at dark, David caught a six eight bull, female bull. And he wanted to kill it for the jaws and I wouldn't let him. And uh we wrestled it around in the dark because he wanted a tooth out of it. So here we are with a buck knife and a pair of pliers trying to cut a tooth out of this live bull shark. We got it done. We got scraped up, but we got it done. And we were sitting in lawn chairs with a lantern on the hood of the truck. We were sitting on lawn chairs in the front of the truck. The truck was backed in toward the beach. And... Uh, You could hear there was a lot of shells stacked up right in there. And all at once you could hear this crunch, 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 crunch of footsteps approaching from the rear of the truck. Well, nobody comes up on you down there like that. I mean, nobody. Wetbacks are nobody. Not at night. And so I had my old Marine Corps survival knife, my K-bar was laying right there next to me and I pulled it out and <laughs> seems like David grabbed a hatchet or something that he had and we sat right in our lawn chairs and then the noise stopped and David said where is he and I said as near as I can figure he's right beside you he's right there in the edge of that lantern light on those shelves and then here come this all at once, there was this voice just hollering and moaning and groaning. And and uh, David weirded out. At that stage of my life, there wasn't a whole lot that weirded me out or surprised me. And uh, then 
the sounds began again, and you could follow the footfalls. He walked back around the tail end of the truck and came over on my side. And you could also hear, it sounded a metallic sound. It sounded like chain links hitting. And he stood there a minute and just raised hillbilly hell. And then he went back over to his original location, began to holler and scream again. And, well, yell. He didn't scream. And then he turned and walked off. And earlier in the day, at the end of the day, I always go on a sand dune at dusk to say my prayers. I call it the sunset ceremony. And as I walked to the dunes that evening, I got about halfway to them, and I began to get really cold. And then as I passed this one spot, I began to warm up again. When I came back off the dune, it was the same way. So I had taken David and told him, let's go up on the dune a minute. And as we got near the uh near that spot, he said, are you cold? I'm freezing to death. And I laughed, and I said, come on, it'll stop in a minute. And it did. And then on the way back, we skirted that location just for kicks. And you could feel the coolness over there, but it didn't affect you like being on it. Well, this was the area that those footsteps walked back toward. And so, David said, Mr. Sandifer, is there anything you want out of the truck? I said, no, David. He said, well, I'm fixing to get in my sleeping bag, zip it up, lock all the doors, and you're not getting in. And if I ever get back to town, I am never coming back down here again. <laughs> and so, David went to bed. <coughs> well, I sat up. And the entity, that's all I know to call it, came back two times for shorter duration and then walked back off in the same area. And uh, then the last time he did, or the second time he did, I had already attempted to go to bed. I was laying on my cot. And I sat up and I told him, look, I don't know what you're doing here. I know you've got some real issues. If there's anything I can help you with, please let me know. And I will try to help you. And if I can't help you, I did not know you were here or I'd have never stopped. But unless I can help you, would you please go away and let me get some sleep? And I promise I'll never camp here again. And so he huffed off, and then I finally dozed off. And uh, then in the middle of the night, I heard him come back and go to yelling again and woke me up. And daylight came on us, and uh, we loaded up, broke camp, and came on back in. And for a couple of years... That was in 78, I think. And a couple of years after that, 
I could stop at that spot and get out and walk directly up to that cold spot and it was still there. And then Hurricane Allen in 1980, it wasn't there after that. Wow. And it was at the 33-mile marker, so they still, occasionally somebody will post it on the Internet, the ghost at the 33. So Cactus Pryor asked me about that, and I said, you know what, Cactus, I'm not being judgmental or anything else. I don't care what anybody does or does not believe. It's of no interest to me at all. Uh, it's simply what happened, and I'm telling you what happened. So you make of it whatever you want to. If that's a ghost story, then there's a ghost story. I don't know. I never felt it was a danger. The voice you heard, you could you could, you could distinguish it a male from a, a it was man a male. from a woman, and it was a male. It was a male. It was a deep voice. I think I would have loaded up and and booked it. I don't think I would. I'll tell you what was really an interesting thing happened after that. For several months, I had a dream, not a nightmare, just a dream, of this very muscular black man with a, a slight beard uh, wearing what appeared to be tattered dungarees with chains on, shackles, broken shackles. And I'll never forget he had a gold earring in his ear. And I thought at first, this guy's a slave. But if he was a slave, undoubtedly they would have taken that golden earring. So I don't, then I had a, I, Messed up and told some guys in the bar about that one night. And the next thing I knew, I get a phone call. They want to pay me $1,500 to take some lady from New York City down there to do a seance on the man at the 33. And uh, I told them to kiss off. And I didn't tell anybody after, about the, it after that for some time. Because I felt like he had rights, too. Yeah. And my old buddy, Lynn Decker, his ashes I shook at the 25. He and I used to go down every Christmas day, and I called him the African. I didn't call him the ghost. I called him the African because of that dream I kept having. And Lynn would, bring a, would stop at the liquor store and buy a pint of rum. And we'd go down to the 33 and pour that pint of rum on the beach as his Christmas present every year. <laughs> Good stuff. That is great. Life's a hoot, man. Yeah. Life I, is a hoot. It's great to hear the story from your mouth because I'd heard it from, you know, third party, but definitely not, not – told like that did you uh i used to bring billy in several times a year to uh, lecture in class were you in any of my classes? i don't i don't remember that specifically um i remember those guest lecturers but i don't remember yeah. having him come in um yeah. 
he, he never told that one, but uh, he, uh, he was always entertaining, always entertaining. So, Dr. McKee, you, um, when did you get involved with, with CCA and kind of talk about your experiences with, with CCA over the past, oh gosh, almost 40 years now? Well, uh, to do that, I need to back up a little. Uh, I grew up in Sinton, uh, raised by my grandparents, like Billy was. Uh, my grandfather was a, a very well-known sheriff in South Texas, San Patricia County. And uh, I uh, grew up with uh, living with the high sheriff, who was sheriff for... Uh, Oh, thir over 30 years. We had uh, 22 bloodhounds in the backyard. We practiced uh, runs with prisoners, trustees out of the jail all the time, fished the Ranges River. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Y'all would do live practice with? Live practice. Uh, give, a, give a prisoner a pack of pale males or camels or something and give them a route to run out through, usually on the Welder Ranch, and they'd run two or three miles and climb a tree and always give them a, a whip, a toe sack, something like that, so when the dogs found them, they could uh, beat them, I mean whip them, whip at them, make them, make them mad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we did that uh, several times a year. Always take the young dogs out with the old dogs and simulate an escape. Uh, put them on the highway where supposedly they got out of a law and law officer's car or something, and put the dogs on the trail. Then let them go. Of course, the prisoner had been gone for probably an hour and a half. And uh, before I forget it, I'd say we never had one escape. <laughs> and they knew they would not escape. Did they volunteer the for that? I mean, is that something like, oh yeah, I want to get get out of this cell and and yeah, let yeah, the dogs chase it, me? It was, but they they were about half excited to be out and about half scared that they'd get chewed up yeah. by those bloodhounds. So we did that. Had a wonderful, wonderful childhood growing up with the with Frank, Sheriff Frank Hunt. Uh, we uh, we had. Uh, Coon dogs, we had cat dogs, we had coyote dogs. Back in the day, he called them wolves down here. We, I was a member of the South Texas Coon and Cat Hunters Association and one of the charter members of the uh, Texas Wolf Hunters Association, where we'd meet on big ranches, 100 men with tents, dogs with numbers painted on their sides, black and tans mostly, mm -hmm. and... Uh, Men would score the the dogs by horseback on uh, the the coyote uh, bays that they would make, or bobcats, or whatever. So I just had a great time fishing uh, all the bays around here. Uh, when my uncles came back from World War II, almost everybody came back and bought a Willis Jeep because that's what that's they what they, what they had the old flat top fender Willises. We had one, we, we, one of my uncles was a big surf fisherman, and we had a, a uh, shack at Yarborough Pass. There were three shacks on the island at that time, 
and we'd go down there and have family reunions, pull those big beach chains and catch redfish and uh, stay there for, oh, three or four or five days, I guess, especially in November when the redfish would be running. So uh, I'd had all that experience and uh, fished the beach a lot back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, started somebody, I forget who it was, maybe Lewis Peets, Bill Malone, Paul Wimberly, some of those old CCA guys uh, were fishing the lagoon, shallow water, which I'd never done much of that. And this was in the early 70s, probably about 70, 71. And uh, that gum went down there, and we just loaded up on fish. And I thought, I'd never had a fishing trip quite like that, except going over to Con Brown Harbor in the winter during the freezes and catching. We'd catch 300 of those little speckled trout, and there wouldn't be a one of them over 13 inches. So that's the only big fish hauls I'd ever had. And then here comes the Laguna Madre. Well, I got real in, uh, real familiar with these guys. They all ran stoner boats and Mayak boats, old original pointy nose boats, mm -hmm. and uh, really got into that. And about that time in the mid '70s, started talking about CCA. There was a Save Our Seas SOS was probably the group down here that preceded CCA, and it's basically the same thing. There's too much commercial fishing and uh, didn't like having to run through the trot lines and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, about 1975 or six, we had a meeting down at Chuck Wild's office. And uh, that's uh, when I became involved. That's when, as I recall, when CCA started. Uh, I won't mention his name, but uh, one of the early CCA guys always said that the Corpus chapter was the first chapter on the Texas coast, even though it's, I think, pretty widely known that Houston was. Well, what he meant was our charter was filed before the charter was filed by mm -hmm. Houston. So. Anyway, I uh, got, got involved very early on with, uh, with the board and still, still am uh, active at the, at the local level and state level. Uh, it's been a very good ride for, uh, for, the, for the resource with CCA coming in. Interesting story there. I uh, work for Coastal Fisheries at the Rockport Marine Lab, one of my first real jobs after I taught biology out at Flower Bluff High School, uh, was uh, working, uh, where, where was I going with that story? We're going to need to edit this a little bit. No, it, it's fine. Um, uh, working, working in Rockport. Working in Rockport. Uh, <clears throat> CCA started giving, offering a dollar a tag for anybody that could return a fish for Parks and Wildlife. Well, that started a uh, little bit of a problem for Parks and Wildlife because they thought they had it all under control. Said, you know, fish management, we got this. We don't need help from anybody. Well, I had to go in and talk to Tom Heffernan, who was a regional director, and uh, I told him, I said, Tom, I'm a biologist here with Parks and Wildlife, but I'm also one of the members of CCA. 
And he looked at me kind of funny like, boy, you, you don't need to be messing with those people. They're coming in and telling us uh, that uh, they're going to give money for any tags returned to us. We just don't know how to react to this group. So anyway, that all worked out. Uh, uh, long story short, uh, CCA could, uh, could not really do what it uh, has done or will do, is doing, without Parks and Wildlife, and certainly the other way around. Parks yeah. and Wildlife not nearly, wouldn't be nearly where they are in fish management without the assistance of uh, CCA. So it's been a, been a long ride and a good ride for both organizations, but uh, one cannot exist without the other. What was it like for you? Um you know, on the ground or in the field in, in those early days when, um, you know, the battle over the redfish industry was just so hot and, and heated. Yeah, well, kind of two two things. I was uh, kind of, you know, at the time, most of the marine biologists didn't fish. They, they, it was something like they didn't do. They were marine biologists, and I really got into marine biology because of fishing. So I came at it from kind of the scientist angler kind of kind of side. I felt like I was pretty good on both sides. And uh, so, you know, I could not only did the data show that, uh, you know, 500 commercial fishermen on the, on the Texas coast were catching more fish than 1.2 million anglers, but I could see that myself in the field in our catches, uh, rod and reeling, because I fished every weekend I could. have had a cabin at Baffin for 40 years and still have it and still love its most precious material good that I own is that cabin. So I, I really came at it from a science side and an angler side and could see very clearly that we had some real problems that had to be addressed. And uh, CCA was the answer. They really uh, came in and and did a job because it was made up of people that not only were uh, very influential in certain areas, but they're also damn good anglers that grew up doing exactly the kinds of things most of us did, which was BB gun in one hand, a fishing rod in the other, giving Mother Nature holy hell. <laughs> and that's why I like the group so much, because uh, we all kind of grew up the same way. You know, Billy and I are the same age. Uh, we did the same exact things. And uh, I think we, any of us, uh, well, I always, I've always told Billy, there's an old picture somewhere of uh, an old Indian chief. I can't remember who he is, but this came out back in the 70s, and there was some environmental something that was going wrong, and the whole picture was just this Indian chief looking out and had this one big tear running down his cheek as he was seeing what he grew up with disappearing. And I think, you know, I've always kind of been one of those guys with one big tear running down my cheek going, what in the hell have we done here? So uh, the early days were, were tough. We, uh, uh, Paul Wimberly had a and several guys did. I never had one, but I didn't have a trout line cutter up on the front of my bow, but you had to run a trout uh, 
trot line cutter on the bow of your boat to be able to run down the uh, west shore of Laguna Madre to get down to the cabins because of all those main lines and stagings hanging with that bait about three inches below, boy, you could get in some bad trouble running into one of those trot lines. And of course, gill nets were, were uh, gill nets over here. What we dealt with in the ranch's system was the trammel nets, uh, mm -hmm. you know, pounder nets, strike nets. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, uh, just real fortunate that I had the uh, <clears throat> the family, the experiences I had uh, to uh, kind of mold me into uh, being an angler, uh, being a hunter, and then being able to uh, get a lot of education. Somebody once said, McKee, you're severely educated. <laughs> 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 that, that came from, we were, I, I was asked to talk at a, dolphin feeding uh, hearing over here one time. Irv and Sonia Strong were feeding dolphins over out of Ingleside. And, you know, it's just like anything. You get a, anything custom food, they're going to be coming over. And, and uh, I, I got up there and uh, started telling my opinion as a scientist uh, that I didn't think that was quite right. And uh, he finished up by saying, well, you know, you got it. Uh, take take in the bind into account that, that Dr. McKee is just severely educated. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I went that route and uh, it's been good for me. Heck, you're one of my students from back in the day and done very well. Uh, I think what I thought I brought to the table as a professor was the fact that no matter what student came in to talk to me about what kind of problems they were having, I could almost every time say, I have done not only what you've done, I've even screwed up worse than you have. <laughs> so if I can do it, you can do it. It doesn't take anything except good common sense and hard work, stubbornness, and you can get where you want. Because I'm just always average IQ. I mean. I just told somebody yesterday on, uh, I said, you know, I scored on the SAT right between the salutorian and the valedictorian, and yet I graduated the bottom quarter of my class in high school because that's where I wanted to graduate. I said, I probably worked harder being in the bottom quarter than the valedictorian did to be at the top. But uh, I was, uh, I guess, classic underachiever but finally got into, loved biology, loved the sciences, loved observation. I loved always relationships, how this plant coexists with this other plant, and just wow, you know. So when I finally got in, and, and not only did I bomb out of college once, I did it twice, <laughs> but I finally got into some classes, upper level biology classes, with good professors, and uh, I did 4.0 all the way through my PhD. But I've just never was quite interested in most of the stuff they wanted me to learn. I hated history. Now I love it. I wish I'd listened more to history. I just absolutely love it. But uh, at the time, it was uh, it was all about hunting and fishing, and school just didn't cut it. Uh, 
Then I got into college and it was all about beer and babes because I grew up in a very uh, religious Church of Christ family. And uh, there was none of that nonsense, none of that monkey business. Uh, no dancing. No dancing. No music. No and I music. grew up Church of Christ as well. And I tell you, when I got out of that setting, I kind of went nuts. <laughs> and uh, I went to San Marcos, Southwest Texas, and boy, all those little Czech girls up there, it's four to one, girls Ooh. to boys. And uh, they always, all a lot of fun, real cute. And uh, I, I just went crazy. I went up there on a track scholarship, San Marcos. I was a pole vaulter and got up there. Uh, all of a sudden, pole vaulting just didn't mean the same thing it meant in <laughs> high school. So I, I left that and uh, bounced around, but uh, never lost vision of what I really liked the most, and that was science, biology. I never changed majors. Even when I was bombing out of school, I still was a <laughs> biology major. But I figured out all you got to do, it's so damn easy. You got to go to class. You got to keep up. You got to take notes. You can't study the night before. And all of a sudden it was, duh. I you know, started going to class hit, and all of a sudden I'm an A student. Just and take before, it in a little bit at a time and little, not all at once. Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah. I, I, I guess I've always been what they used to call a uh, late bloomer. It really was. Uh, I never had a beard till I got out of high school. Straight era. Uh, pole vaulter, Church of Christ guy. Uh, all, everything was about hunting and fishing. And Billy will probably remember this. When we were kids, Everything had a season. We had, March was always kite season. You'd fly kites. I think after after kite season, then there was marble season. Everything on playground, recess, was shooting marbles. We lived down on a ranch, Jones Ranch, down in Brooks County for a couple of years, went to school in Encino, and down there the big deal was tops, spinning tops. And I brought that back to Sinton, and boy, all of a sudden, there's about a month of top playing. And then there was deer season, and there was turkey season, and then there was duck season. Everything operated around seasons. And I had all these big, good-looking uncles that all fished and hunted, and my grandfather, we had all these bloodhounds in the backyard, and uh, just uh, all my uncles and grandfather walked on water. I mean, I just I just admired them all. They were my heroes. So I couldn't help but end up doing something in the science world, biology world. I knew it wasn't going to be Gulf shrimping, <laughs> even though I did a damn good job at it. Only fight I had is uh, since I've I guess I've been. Uh, in my 20s was uh, in a beer joint in Cameron, Louisiana. Uh, that, that, that story doesn't even fit here, but... Uh, oh, go, feel free, go I, ahead. I didn't think I was, it was supposed to be gone three to five days out of Con Brown Harbor over there off one of the Gulf King boats. And at that time I was on the Connie Mack, very famous baseball player. And I uh, had a captain by the name of Burl Martin out of Alabama, I could not understand a word that guy said. He had the biggest Alabama 
thing. I, I could get a hint of what he wanted me to do, but that was about it. College kid signing on to this, fixing to go to college. I had I just graduated. Day after I graduated from high school, I went over and got a job on a shrimp boat. The rigger, there's three three positions on a shrimp boat. A captain, a rigger who worked all the nets and cooked, at least on our boat, and the header was a bottom position. All you did is pull the heads off shrimp and wash dishes, and then anything else they wanted you to do. Well, we're supposed to be gone. We are working at that time. That would have been May, I guess. Uh, that wouldn't have been white shrimp yet. We were going out for brownies offshore. So it's supposed to be a three to five day trip. We're just gonna go out, run the tri nets and come back in, maybe get a few boxes of shrimp. 31 days later, we pull into Cameron, Louisiana. We'd been forced in there by a storm. And every shrimp boat in that part of the Gulf had pulled into Cameron, Louisiana. Boats were tied up, five, six abreast. To get off a boat, you'd hop from boat to boat to boat and get on land there. Cameron had been wiped out in 1957 by a horrible, horrible hurricane. Uh, this was 65, so it had been built back with probably four beer joints. All the, These things look worse than what you'd find uh, down in Baghdad, Mexico. Uh, tin and plywood, no windows, uh, four or five beer joints, and one little office building there. So we pulled in there. Everybody's extremely drunk. Uh, we uh, and I and I'm trying to get off this son of a bitch. I mean, I want to get off this boat so bad. I'm in love with a girl, and uh, we're supposed to be gone three to five days. Thirty-one days later, we're in here. All I can think about, I'm getting off of this damn boat and I'm never gonna get on another one again. Well, there was one bus a week that ran from Lake Charles to Cameron and it had just been there the day before or something like that. Uh, bottom line was, I was gonna have to go back out again. So I was sitting in the bar. I didn't think the guys liked me. One of the things that, that cued me to that was Walter Williams was the header. And I'm, I never saw him completely naked, but I tell you what, there wasn't a spot on him that didn't have a tattoo. Neck, back, chest, stomach, arms, legs, the whole bit. And that was pretty damn unusual back in the, in the 60s damn unusual yeah, for that time and he walter williams uh never talked on the shrimp boat turns out he was very mean on the shrimp boat he'd been shrimping 44 years he's seasick the whole damn time he's out when you get him off of that boat he'd have three or four hundred dollars he would you couldn't shut him up because he felt good he lived in a burnt out car body up on the rise there at con brown harbor when he wasn't on on the on a boat, he was living up in that old rusted out car shell. So before we got into Cameron, I don't remember when it was, but they would they would mess with me because I was a college kid, and uh, they uh, one day we we, we dumped a 
tripped the net there on the back deck, and I was sitting on that little culling bench and bringing stuff to me. You know, Walter faked a, like a boat shift or something and ran into me and knocked me over into the pile of fish and then stood up like, what are you going to do about it? That kind of stuff. I knew already I wasn't going to screw these guys because, you know, they just throw you overboard and say, hell, he was out there and just fell over. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I, I didn't think they liked me very much. But we got in this beer joint, and I was sitting there next to a real drunk shrimper, just leaning up on the bar. And every once in a while, the bartender would walk by, and he'd go, something like that. Well, I could make out what he was saying. He was trying to stop her and give another damn beer, which he didn't need another one. But... I, she didn't hear him, couldn't understand him, whatever, so I, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, this man needs a beer. Boy, no sooner than I did that, he came across with both hands, hit me upside of the head, and rolled me off back on the barroom floor. He was very alive, he was just real drunk, but he knew <laughs> what was going on. Well, I knew I was part of the crew because the captain and the rigger jumped in and started whipping. Of course, the whole thing erupted into one big fight, and we just fought and became buddies from that point <laughs> on. I knew I was in the club, and uh, I went back on next year, and I was on the Southern Pride the next year with the same guys, and uh, Walter was, was uh, I'm, I can't imagine shrimping for 44 years and being seasick the whole time you're, I mean, horribly seasick the whole time you're out there. But that's all he knew how to do, other than live up in that burnout car body. But uh, I spent I spent one night in a on a shrimp boat. We were trying to catch broodstock. You remember when they were trying to do the bait yeah, shrimp project yeah, yeah. Um, 15 years ago, I guess now, maybe 20. Anyhow, we were going to catch broodstock, so they wouldn't leave the nets down for too long because you're trying to catch a shrimp alive and um i too just for that those short drags i was blown away by the bycatch what really struck me was that whenever they uh they fill up their trash can throw the bag over the over the side of the boat mm -hmm. and i just shocked me. i was like all right this is not a place for me i can't yeah. that 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 struck a chord with me so i'm sure it that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's probably a, a lot worse that goes on out there than that. You know, we, Billy and I have talked about this before, but uh, I think Billy saw some turtles caught in those nets, but I never did. We never caught one turtle tro dragging inshore late summer for the whites. And, of course, we never caught anything offshore. But, boy, when those uh, when that shrimp season would open in the Gulf, I guess that'd be, what, July 15th or whenever that opened. Boy, you go down two days later down that beach, and one day Dr. Hildebrand and I went down there, and I picked up 17, I took the heads off of them, 17 loggerheads. Uh, so I know that it happens. It happened, but as many drags as I... I was involved in inshore from Louisiana all the way down to Mexico. Never caught one turtle. We caught one in two and a half years. What about uh, the, the the bycatch? I mean, do you see a lot of flounder and snapper? The bay is your is your flounder 
But the golf is big time a red snapper. See, when those big fleets get out there, nobody thinks about it, but those shrimp run from the boats, and they'll go to structure, what we call a hang, be it a mud bank or a coral reef or whatever it is. Why hang? Because the net gets hung. The net gets hung on it. And uh, actually, there was a book out by some government agency called The Hang Book, which was obstructions for shrimping in the Gulf of Mexico. Gary Graham. Yes, sir. Yes. But uh, you had to be a real good shrimper to shrimp right up alongside those hangs. I mean, you had to be on the top of your game. And the boats I worked on was the captain was those kind of a guy and we just absolutely litter the deck with red snapper half the size of your hand just unbelievable yeah yeah lane snapper vermilion snapper sure uh, b-liners sure red snapper uh but just lots of what you'd call uh, underutilized stuff or uh, trash, we called them, was, mm-hmm. you know, the the uh, cigar fish, uh, lizard fish, and uh, croakers, croakers, uh, the little flats, the uh, uh, soles, yeah, uh, tongue fish, tongue fish. Uh, I remember seeing a lot of mantis uh, shrimp, a lot, a lot of mantis shrimp, yeah. yeah. I remember what it busted my bubble right off the bat. Because I decided in the military that that's what I was going to do. I was going to go to work on a Gulf Shrimper, learn my trade, and end up buying and living on a shrimp boat. But the first drag we ever made, 40 miles offshore, when we picked up, we had a chewed-up chicken leg and a a Lone Star beer can. (laughs) And it kind of burst my bubble right off the bat. Kind of a Forrest Gump catch. Yeah, that's what's the yeah. same thing. <laughs> that's what we got. Until the hurricane came and then yeah. everything worked out. Um, well, before I forget about it, let's let's jump into the Big Shell cleanup, Billy. Why don't we talk about the history behind that, kind of how that began. You mentioned it's coming up this year on the 25th, which is uh, not too long from now. Um, yes, we're going to begin at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, the 25th of February. Volunteers are going to meet at the Maliki Pavilion. The entry fee to the sh- seashore is waived for participants. Uh, we need four-wheel drives, uh, trailers to haul trash. We need volunteers who do not have four-wheel drives what we call walking volunteers are very welcome and we farm them out to vehicles that can haul extra people this is the largest event of its kind in the world we have removed two million four hundred and fifty six thousand pounds of trash off that beach this is the 22nd year of it i started it in 1995 I was just sick and tired of the trash. And uh, I remember asking when I was a kid, why is all that trash down the beach? 
And they go, well, it'd be too hard to get it up. Then they went to the moon. And the trash is still on the beach. What's up with that? How can it be too hard to pick up a little trash when they can go to the moon? And uh, I had some customers from Arkansas that owned, they were semi-retired. They owned several classy recreational uh, trailer parks in Arkansas. And they were thinking about moving down here. And they went on a sightseeing trip. And the woman just incessantly carried on about all that trash. And I explained the convergence occurrence and all this stuff to her. And she says, you don't understand. We are not going to move down here now. And the reason we don't isn't a matter of the trash being here or how the trash got here. It's that the local community doesn't think enough of itself to pick up the trash. And that hit hard with me. And I, I thought about that all winter. And then I went to the superintendent. I asked for of the seashore. And I asked for permission to begin the cleanup. And uh, he told me it was impossible, but that I certainly had their permission. And uh, we, we just played it off the cuff. Uh, Nothing like that had ever been done here before. I really couldn't seek advice from anyone, though God knows I tried. And <clears throat> I, I pulled in every debt I was owed, everybody that owed me something. I stuck it to them on the big shell cleanup. And uh, I'll be darned, but uh, 300 people showed up and picked up 50 tons of trash. That has exceeded your expectations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, by far. And so we have done it in some of the most horrible weather conditions imaginable. I'll never forget it was drizzling almost sleet. And the wind was blowing about 35, 36. And we drove up on an elderly lady picking trash up by herself she was wasn't as fast as her co-workers down around the 17 mile marker and i asked i said ma'am uh, i was worried about her safety i said ma'am I, I said do you need anything are you all right and she said yeah i need something i need you to get out of here and leave me the hell alone i'm trying to pick up trash i came up on another volunteer who was in a wheelchair and would get out of his wheelchair and crawl on his knees picking up trash. And our outdoor rider, Buddy Golf, was with me. And we pulled up to him and Buddy said, Sir, you don't really have to do this. And this guy looked up at him from his knees and said, This is my beach too. I've got as much right to pick up trash out here as anybody else. And when you see these kind of things, like I say, the Homo sapiens, not my favorite species. But when you see these kind of things, 
it kind of reaffirms your faith in people. And uh, one year on a T-shirt, it said, had a picture of me, and it said, or a cartoon of me, and it said, you are my heroes. And they are my heroes. You know, I'm not the hero. If I could, uh, I never wanted to call it the Billy Sanderford Beach Cleanup to me. It's just the big show cleanup. Because if Billy Sanderford could clean it up, he'd just go down there and clean it up. But Billy Sanderford can't. It takes all these people. But in 98, I guess it was, uh, Field and Stream magazine selected me as one of the six heroes of conservation in North America and sent me to Washington, D.C., did the guided tour of the White House, and uh, or a private tour of the White House, and uh, I realized how actually well known and accepted this event was in Texas. And uh, it fascinated me. We were standing at the door to the Oval Office, and I was looking over in the next room at Teddy Roosevelt's Medal of Honor hung on the wall, and I thought, there we are on a six-person guided tour of the White House on invitation. And at one time, I was barred out of every bar in Flower Bluff. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, you never know where life's going to take you. But I have helped maybe five or six cleanups get started in other areas that have patterned off us. And one of them was up in the Great Lakes. And I don't know how many of them have survived over an extended period of time. But uh, that's a good feeling. And it's a good feeling. You know, if you go somewhere and there's trash thrown everywhere, you're going to throw your trash too. Mm -hmm. That's a simple fact. You don't go to the dump and pick up your cigarette butts. And so if we... Once we get that established in people's minds, education's what it's all about. You know, this planet's here. Its resources are dwindling. We reproduce like rodents. Uh, If we want things to be sustainable, our fisheries, but also our environment to be sustainable, then we've got to carry the message. We've got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So... I think I'm the only person that's been to all 21 of the cleanups, probably because I'm the only one that couldn't get out of it. (laughs) But I said, as long as I'm alive, there will be a beach cleanup. And Tyler Thorson is and was my right-hand man for many years. And he said, don't worry about it, Dad. If nobody, there will be a beach cleanup. Because me and you will do it if nobody else does. But since we started this Friends of Padre organization, they have taken over the planning and stuff for it. And we've been able to expand. And this year, for the first time, we're going to try to recycle some of that plastic. We have been approached by a company in New Jersey Mm -hmm. that's going to send down dumpsters and stuff And we're not going to let it cripple the event. 
because it could really hurt us with our manpower if you got two people walking along covering the same area yeah, yeah. then you're only covering half the area that two people would have but we're going to set aside a few individuals in each of our sections to pick up only plastic and see how that works and how that may bait us in the future i even i told them at the last friends of pottery meeting that honestly if you wanted to have a a recycle event it should be a separate event where that's what you were doing was picking up plastic where you would accomplish the ultimate goal the goal of the big shell cleanup is to pick up as much trash from as much area as we can so that's it and um you see you you, you kind of alluded to it you've got all all walks of, of life there but have you seen a shift towards getting more of a um, the youth and, and younger folks out there? Or, is there, or has that always been a part of it and been present? It's always been a part of it. <clears throat> Some years we have more school groups than others. We often are a little bit cautious about the school groups because they come on a the bus, there's 50 of them, then all at once we've got to figure out a place for 50 people to get a ride down and we try not to get overwhelmed with that and very honestly one thing about the kids is a lot of times the kids will want to pick up for an hour or two and quit and that ain't the way this is you know this is a this is not the general land office cleanups not awfully demanding of their participants this is demanding but I've always said that if they can con people into going to Terralingua, Texas to cook chili, <laughs> then we can can coerce them into picking up trash on the Padre Island National Seashore. And you have some some folks that uh, come back every year from great distances, you know, that they travel down to Corpus Christi area specifically for this event. Yes, all over Texas. We have had them come from Florida. We pick up a lot of the, some of the winter snowbirds from the uh, up northern United States mm-hmm. and Canada and stuff. I think we've even had a few foreigners come. Uh, one thing I notice that's interesting is that, which will interest y'all is that whenever I see a father with a young son out there, if you talk to him a little bit, he's a CCA guy. And he's trying to teach his son. And I had a a dentist customer uh, named Roland Saradet from Austin. And he and his 9 or 10-year-old son Drove down that night, slept in the truck in the Maliki parking lot, picked up trash all day, and then ran back to Austin because they had to be at a wedding at 7 o'clock. And I told Roland, this is kind of pushing the envelope, isn't it? And he said, not really, not if you want them to understand the significance of keeping the environment clean 
then you ought to show them the lengths that you're willing to go to mm-hmm. to keep it clean. Yeah, It's heartwarming. But we get them all from bandito bikers to cowboys to orange grove farmers to yuppies and, and uh, to stone hippies. <laughs> What's the craziest thing you've seen on pins in your in your career as a guide? One time I was going shark fishing by myself in the late 70s. And at that time we had what we call a high road on the beach. When the tide was high, you could drive right up next to the dunes, but it was pretty soft. And uh, it was those conditions. I was on my way south, say 7.30 in the morning. And I got to the 20-mile marker, and had a guy come up to me one day uh, from the north, and he said, I bet you don't know what this is. And he handed me a piece of wood about three and a half foot long and with obvious chew marks all over it. I said, you're right. I said, something's been chewing on it. He said, it's a beaver chew log. It's off a beaver dam. Wow. So apparently it had got here via the... Mississippi, Mississippi River. Yeah, I, I don't know. know. Maybe up around Conroe, they got beavers in East Texas. I don't know if they do or not. And uh, I've got a bottle, a Bacardi bottle at the house with a note in it from a Dutch freighter. And it said, we are located, we are two Dutch seamen uh, on this ship, on this vessel located 12 miles off the coast of Venezuela. Send us your thoughts. Well, my thoughts were they ought to quit throwing Bacardi (laughs) bottles in the ocean. That was my thought. So I never responded to it. But uh, last year or year before, we had a bale of cocaine. So you name it. Just anything that you can imagine. You ever see... uh you know, the illegal activities from, you know, running drugs. Oh, yeah. You, you, see, oh, yeah. you see boats moving or people actually on the island. First one I ever saw was years and years ago. I was shark fishing by myself on a full moon. I was down around the 40 or 45, and it was calm, and I heard a boat engine woke me up. And I set up on my cot, and here come a panga running right across the top of the first bar. And that's how he was navigating, because there was a slight break on that bar, and he could maintain his distance offshore. But uh, for any number of years, I worked as uh, uh, an informant for the DEA down there, and we made some awfully uh, spectacular uh, cases down there. When Tom Berger was uh, the senior agent here, I had him on a charter one day and didn't know him from Adam. And in a minute, I told him, I said, you know what? You're a fed. He said, how do you know that? And I said, because you've got a personality like a snail. (laughs) And all feds have a personality like a snail. And he said, how do you know that? And I said, I used to be one. I was a sky marshal in New York City. He said, so was I. And he said, Billy Sandifer, oh, my God. 
Uh, I knew you in New York City. Well, Tom helps in the big show. He's retired now. He helps in the big show cleanup every year. But he was a real, he's from New Jersey, and he was a real beach rat. And he had, I explained to him what all was taking place out there mm -hmm. and showed it to him in black and white. And uh, so DA got very active. And uh, they made some real serious cases out there on them. At one time, I even uh, bought a panga at auction over in Ingles, over in uh, Portland that had been seized on pins, a 26-foot panga. And uh, uh, it's always going on. I imagine it always will. Yeah. It's real simple. If you're a smuggler, when do you want to smuggle? Any holiday. Because the feds all take the day off or want to be home with their families, take vacations. So when do you want to come out with a load of dope? On Sunday afternoons when it's just as packed as it gets, you know. I got to see a presentation at the um, one of the last Gulf Council meetings. The Coast Guard gave a presentation on on drugs and, and, and illegal fishing, and his focus was illegal fishing and um uh, they were talking about how many um, seizures they, they have with um, illegal fishing down here in South Texas, most out of near, near South Padre. They estimate around uh, anywhere between 800,000 to 1.3 million pounds of red snapper are illegally fished oh, in yeah. Texas in international waters. And most of those guys are funded heavily by the cartel, just by the way that, you know, type of boats Cartel. that they're using and they said there's not there's likely there's very few illegal fishermen operating under their on their own it's like most of them are funded through the cartel they give those sharks the devil too yep they do they big do big time that's do. big you're time right. you're right down there at baghdad playa baghdad they're still running boats up here gillnetting all the time we find them with sharks and them dead on the beach when a piece of net breaks loose yeah, they figure. I think they figure if they could keep the, uh, they can keep them busy looking at guys illegally fishing, then that's just fewer eyes looking at them running running drugs. You know, uh, I had a gay warden named Henry Balladermis from. He was assigned to uh, Port Mansfield then. I think he's in Rockport now. Uh, tell me years ago that he said when you guys see webbing on the beach let us know that's their only way of knowing they're out there because that webbing comes in pretty quick if it breaks loose but he said what they're doing is running a load of dope up offloading the dope and then gillnetting on the way back hmm. just like a truck driver mm -hmm. he yeah. delivers his product and then he's got a deadhead all the way back yeah. to his hometown you don't want to run empty yeah, they don't. You don't want to run empty. If you can make money both ways, then you got it made. Yeah. So, you know what got me though? It says that those guys that work on those pangas, that they, if they're real lucky, they make twenty dollars a day. If they're real good at it and they're real lucky, they make twenty dollars a day. It looks like somehow 
we could find something else for them hard-working people to do that could make them more than $20 oh. a day so they didn't have to haul dope. They could be making $20 an hour. Yeah, because it's dangerous as hell. And everybody that's ever chased them out of a boat tells me they are just extraordinary seamen. And my boat that I bought, that 26-footer, it came in with some with three Mexican nationals and I think 350 pounds of marijuana. And they drive them right up on the beach. And the seas were 8 to 10. Whoa. And the guy was driving with a tiller 150 Yamaha and sitting on a red towel on the engine cowling. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so what's unbelievable is he got away. <laughs> and, and that individual got away on two different boats. He, twice he escaped from everybody. He had helicopters and everything else. He was just too cool for school. I remember the demise of that engine. Uh, it blew up. Blew up. Uh, it had been running, instead of two-stroke uh, motor oil, it had running 30-weight in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it went kaboom. We took it. You let me have that boat when I was in the shop. We ran that down to Baffin for one of the CCA retreats. And I think that we, we made it down and back, but I think the next week it went kaput on you. We I've were, never seen an engine as dirty inside as that was. That's I'd had it. I spent $1,000 rehabbing it before you saw it. <laughs> and uh, uh, I had a charter, and we were almost to the jet. We were... Working out of Port Mansfield, we were at a motel in Port Mansfield, and the, the charter and I did, and we ran out the channel, got almost to the jetties, and I heard this clank, and I looked up, and when I pulled the cowling, it was just the head was just cracked all the way across, and so I go, well, <laughs> it was Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> And I called my buddy Mike McBride, who was guiding on out of Mansfield, and I said, Mike, I need to get back to town some way. And so he left his charter standing out on a flat somewhere <laughs> and ran me into town, or ran out there and got me and pulled me to town. And so all the way, and there's all these hundreds of boats on Memorial Day weekend, and I've got my name on the side of the boat, you know. <laughs> and McBride keeps hollering back at me, boy, that panga sure toes nice, Billy. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. McKee, when did you start fishing um, Baffin? Because I'd like to get into some uh, historical perspective of fishing in Baffin Bay. So what, when did you begin your career as an angler? Well, well, our always, and this still holds true today, you know, uh, the bays are pretty empty, or used to be, once hunting season started. Once you got into dove season, all of a sudden the bays were empty. It's not that way anymore, but we would uh, dove hunt, deer hunt, and then when we just could not stand the 
sight of any kind of a firearm again, we'd go fishing usually uh, end of January, 1st of February. We'd always start out usually in the land cut. Uh, I did most of my early fishing down there with Bill Sheka. Uh, he uh, was, I still think, uh, the premier guide that's ever existed in the Laguna Madre was Billy Sheka in spite of his uh, uh, excessiveness at whatever he's doing. <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he was something else. We'd, we'd normally start uh, fishing that, that, uh, in February, uh, January, February, and always liked those kind of this kind of weather. Uh, not, not right now, but foggy, drippy, uh, in-between fronts weather, and mm -hmm. uh, my best memories I guess are are being in the Badlands during that kind of weather and I remember one one or two trips with Billy down there we had uh, had stringers of uh, trout that uh, I don't know if we ever had a, had one that we didn't have anything under 28 inches but we had we had some whopper days uh, I think the biggest trout that I remember getting out of there was, and Billy called it 33 inches, 33 and a little bit. But uh, we uh, would would fish all year round down there. I, I checked out for deer season. I didn't fish from November through through December. It just, you know, you can, you can fish all year, you can't hunt all year. Yeah. That was a, that was the rationale on that. But uh, we'd you know, love to get into the nine mile hole and sight cast redfish. I was almost more of a blind caster though. I, I, I just like to get in some, some little bit deeper water with a little, little color to it and just let me go. And uh, those, uh, so many of the fishermen back in the day were sight casters. They didn't want to cast until they saw something. I just like to cast. I just I I go all day just casting. I just mm -hmm. love casting. So uh, we did a lot of a lot of summer fishing. Uh, we uh, there there were those years back back in the lagoon where it was it was a rarity to catch a redfish. Really was because of what the what the netters were doing. But as you know, that's been a very successful story. One of the things that's really happened in the lagoon, and, and really has happened everywhere, there's uh, more people have more expendable cash than ever before, and seemingly, uh, in terms of having plenty of money, having a lot of time to be outside doing things. And uh, boat traffic is just, that's the big difference. You know, back when I first got into that cabin down at Twin Palms Island, every boat that went by, you knew who who it was. Uh, there were just so few people in the early 70s fishing down there. And when you saw that boat, they saw that you had the flag up at your cabin. They knew you were there. They knew where you were going to be fishing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You saw them go by. You knew they were down here. You knew where they were going to be fishing. And nobody ever interfered with anybody because of manners and respect. Yeah, yeah. But there were just so few people doing it. One of the things that uh, 
uh, boat dealers always uh, had to live with was the fact that there were just certain months of the year you couldn't give a boat away. And quite a few years ago, Billy Holmes with Gulf, Gulf Coast Marine told me that, you know, that, that hadn't been the case in quite a while, David. He said, now some of my strongest months are December, January selling boats, and most of those boats are sold to first-time boat owners. So, you know, the, the idea of uh, now it's dove season, nobody's on the water. Now, there's lots of people that don't dove hunt, uh, lots of people that don't deer hunt, and, you know, lots of the advent of the tunnel boat was a big game changer. And, uh, you know, like, like many of us my age, uh, we, we were running those big 20-foot uh, Makos and Grady Whites and things like that, and you, you simply couldn't get into shore. You yeah. had to walk in, anchor up in three foot of water and walk in. And, of course, I've got a tunnel boat and uh, uh, TRP, and, uh, and, but uh, lots of people do. And uh, just a lot of pressure on the water it never had before. Well, I don't know what it's like purchase, purchasing a boat. Um, you know, several decades ago, but now anyone with just moderate credit history, credit score can go in and yeah. get financed, and yeah. they can justify that 150 or $200 payment over the next seven years. Oh, yeah, seven-year finance on a saltwater boat, that yeah. just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. No, but, but people are doing it. That's, that's, and I guess that's one of the real challenges CCA has got is, you know, being for all fishermen, uh, being able to... Uh, ensure that uh, conditions are optimum for everybody to be out on the water and having a good time and uh, having a successful catch is uh, is harder than ever. Yeah, it's yeah. A it's hell, a hell of a mission. Yeah, it's a difficult position to be in when you want to increase. I talked about this before in another podcast, but like state parks, they want to increase uh, visitation but they're also charged with maintaining that habitat that the park's centered around. So that's always a conflict. Yeah, and yeah. same thing on the water. You want, you want to sell more fishing licenses. We certainly want more members, but then you're going to have more user conflicts yeah. as a result. Yeah. Yeah. It's a so tough that's, one. It's tricky. Um, well, what about, uh, the fishery itself? Um, Laguna or, or, or Baffin in particular, um, where do you feel like it's at now as compared to, um, say 30 years ago well i'm i'm always was a proponent for uh you know just don't keep any more than what you're going to eat in the next few days don't don't try to tell yourself you're going to eat that freezer burn fish when you know you won't you're probably going to give it to the cats and hopefully they'll eat it but uh the the five fish limit has really really helped a lot uh, I think the situation with the flounder, I, I think just undoubtedly that's been a, been a success story in uh, changing of, the, of the, the season, the bag limit and all. So I think the, the question still is, you know, as good as those stories are uh, and everybody seemingly being able to have more time and being able to afford uh, that boat for $150 a month, are we going to have enough fish to keep everybody happy uh, in the years to come? And a lot of that has to do with just uh, habitat protection. Uh, 
you know, when when I was growing up, I don't care if it was the bay or the, the river or wherever we were stomping around, you had places, you could have a handful of places that were yours. You never saw another footprint there. Nobody even knew about that place. And how many people now have a place that nobody else knows about, or that there's never been another boat or another footprint there? It just doesn't exist. You know, it's very plain that where people go, things change, and there's mm -hmm. more people going more places. And uh, so along with, you know, that, that dirty circle of trying to keep enough fish out there for everybody, one big key component of that is keeping the environment healthy enough to support those fish that are out there. And uh, I, I think a you know, big, big problem is boat traffic. However you can uh, explain or define boat traffic, it has a pronounced effect, in my opinion, on, on, uh, on fishing success. Bill, did you ever have any conflicts on the beach as, as, as surf fishing became more popular throughout your career as a guide? Did you ever, you may not have seen it just because you were so far out, uh, from, so far down pins, but did you ever have any conflicts with um, other fishermen on the beach? Well, not really, but I had problems with it because, for example, if you're shark fishing, those sharks, some of them come straight in and out from offshore inshore, but most of them are parallel in the shoreline. So if you, and they'll go for several miles. So if you've got a camp a half a mile north of you and a camp a, south, a half a mile south of you, you're shut out. There is no avenue of approach. You might as well crank in and quit because you can't catch fish. I'll tell you the thing that really interests me, what David was saying about the boat traffic, which I totally agree with, but we used to do a lot of winter trout fishing down there. And one thing, and it's not only the winter, this is for trout, period, in the surf. We'd do real well all week, and then Friday at noon it'd shut off until Sunday afternoon. And I learned if I had a, a weekend trout trip, I had to know where those fish were in advance. I had to get there immediately because after 10 or 15 vehicles passed, they lockjawed. The traffic, the vibration of that traffic on the beach is unnatural. And they're not used to getting run over all the time like the fish in the bay are. And the amount of beach traffic on the beach impacts the quality of the catching that day dramatically for all species. And so that's a hassle that, oh, I, when I first started guiding, it got to where I had a little fan club. And I used to get my gas out on the island where that Texas star is now. And I'd pull up there to get my gas on a Saturday morning. There'd be four or five trucks sitting there waiting for me. They're going to follow you in. They're going to follow me <laughs> in. Well, 
They knew not to get too close because I throw things at them <laughs> like a three-ounce sinker. So. <laughs> and so, but they'd camp. They'd stop too close. So it got to where on Saturday mornings, I never fished in the big shell, always fished in the devil's elbow or south. And I'd tell my customers on the first stop, I'd say, okay, we're going to fish here. We're going to stop here. And I'd go put sinkers on there, spinning reels, but I wouldn't put any bait on them. And they'd go, what's up with that? How are we going to catch anything? I said, we're not. We're going to get rid of all these people. Because I would stop in a deep hole. Okay, wherever you have a deep hole, you got a shallow spot on each side of it. It's not worth a darn. So if the people would give me a couple of hundred yards leeway, that put them in the not worth a darn spot. Mm -hmm. And we would sit there and BS and talk about what our day was going to be while they got the barbecue pit out, offloaded the kids and the dogs and all of that. And then we'd drive off and leave them high and dry and go fishing. And it worked. It worked very, very well. They knew they were in the zone. Yeah. They weren't going to leave. And they're like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, Sanderford was fishing here. <laughs> Billy stopped here. We're set up. So. And another thing I got to doing, I learned just a survival technique over the years. Of course, we all knew each other, too. And uh, I knew who the good trout fishermen were. So when we'd go by them, I'd look to see what color mirror lure they had on. And if they had fished before I had, I'd know what they were getting strikes on. So real quick, I snapped. And every time we get ready to move to another hole, I'd change lures and put the wrong color on my reels. And then... My customers would laugh because everybody that passed us would have that same color on their rigs. <laughs> and we would secretly be using a different color than they were. Sneaky. You got the otter's deception down really well. I had to. It's, it's basic survival, survival, you know. But I was in a really unique position, and I have been so appreciative of it, and I still am. The average... Weekend angler does not love fishing guides. That's back to life. They love me. <laughs> but I did anything for them I could. And if we were catching the heck out of the trout in a hole at the 34, and we got ready to leave, I'd flag down the first truck to come by and tell them, there's a bunch of trout right out there if y'all want them. Well, that word spreads on the beach pretty quick. And if you got stuck or you got broke down, who are you most apt to run across? Me, I'm down there 128 days a year. And I carried lots of oil and transmission fluid and stuff. Never would take any money for it. That was beach courtesy. You pass it on. But they were they respected me and i respected them and i guess that's what's lacking in your typical guide scenario but i'll tell you what's tragic 
to me is I never had that many customers for winter trout. In later years, I had some. I'll never forget, Buddy Goff wrote this article about trout fishing with me in the winter down there. And I had these five guys from Dallas book me. So I went to pick them up, and they didn't have any uh, waiters. It's January, and these guys ain't got any waiters. I said, man, y'all must be tough. Oh, we are. So I put their lures on their rigs and told them cast right. I handed them all a reel, and I said, okay, them trout will be right up against that bar right there. And I turned around, and all five of them are standing there. And then I snapped. I said, y'all can't cast. They said, uh-uh. I said, none of you, all five of you can't cast. They said, yeah, that's right. Don't you cast for us? <laughs> well, they had me confused with rubber band man. So my first, I don't know how many people I have taught to cast. I mean, I wouldn't even care. Hundreds, I can tell you that. And uh, if I have to teach them to cast, usually I'll take the bottom bait rig off and put it on a lure. So repetition, we'll get some repetition going. And they leave, whether they get a mess of fish or not. They know how to cast. Teach a man to fish. Sure. But I'll tell you a very true and a very sad story to me. That was my fishing. I quit shark fishing over the years. I just wasn't mad at them anymore. And I love to play with those winter trout. And I always felt like the biggest trout in this world was going to come out of the surf in the winter. I have caught 168 trout in two days back-to-back because I spent the night on the same mirror lure out of that surf. They would have averaged three and a half to four pounds, and six of them weighed over eight pounds. I hadn't caught an a eight-pound trout out of the surf in ten years. That winter trout fishery has totally disappeared. It began to dwindle in the early 90s, which coincides with the croaker fishery in the bays. And each year it got to where it was leaner and leaner until... You might go four times and catch one fish all day long, just grinding your backside off and catch one fish. And when they talk about the health of the trout stakes, I realize that the bays seem to be doing pretty good. But they're not taking into account that we had an entirely different fishery going on out there, which should be included in that population that has totally disappeared. What do you that hear on concern. that tide runner tied in with that? You know, we Stein said that uh, there never was such thing as a tide runner that would be a surf trout that would come back into the bay. Uh, that's what we used to concentrate on back when, before Billy Sander for Billy Sheka was a guide, I'm talking about when we fished. Uh, very predictable. You would uh, trout weren't built the same. 
they showed up in great numbers. They were very light colored, very strong. Uh, and we, we would follow them through the land cut for a month and a half. They'd finally get to, to the summer house area back through there and uh, disappear into the bays. All the while, they were getting more color to them. And I always thought, as did Billy, that that was that surf trout that would come back into the bay through the land cut there, either through uh, uh, east cut, uh, probably through the east cut, maybe through uh, the further south at the South Padres, but uh, never knew. But he said that definitely is not the case. My question is, Billy, is the do you know any guides that are trying to concentrate on that land cut January, February, March trout that we would have normally fished for the tide runners that time of year? That doesn't seem to be real big either, David. That seems to have decreased as well. Uh, I've always believed in the tide runners because that's what I was taught. And the trout come in the bay in the spring to spawn. Then they move up toward Corpus Christi Bay. The water gets real hot, especially during brown tide years. And uh, then they move back out into the surf in July. In that crystal clear water full of menhaden and pilchards and Spanish sardines and finger mullet. And uh, then in the winter, there, I'm not saying that, that, that all the trout were <laughs> in the surf in the winter. Certainly they weren't. But there were these big, broad-shouldered, little-headed uh, trout out there that fought about twice as hard as a Baffin Bay trout. And they were in large numbers. They were in schools. Those schools might move as much as 30 miles in a day. And, uh, or they might stay in the same place for three or four days. And then in the spring, they went back in again. Now, I was told this is a tide runners. The old men, when I say that, I mean what I call the clan, which was Ralph Wade and Poncho Brundage and a handful of people who really knew how to fish for their, those winter trout because there never was a, a dozen of them that knew how to catch those winter trout. Those fish are very selective about lure color and which is again totally backwards, backwards. from everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Out there in that surf they'll hit one color plug. Mm -hmm. If they're going crazy they'll hit two. One day out of a hundred they'll hit anything you throw at them and uh uh you learn i even knew the sequence from september through february which pretty well ended it with the winds and the water getting rougher of which lure they were most susceptible to hit first they started out with a uh fgo 11 which is your short or your pressing head white and silver mirror then they went to the 808 which is uh black chrome 
orange. Then they went to the 804, which is orange, golden, orange. And it moved right along. And I had that advantage. I knew which I could pick within three lures of what they were going to hit. So, my goodness, that helped a lot. But having three to five customers helps a lot, too. Because when you hadn't been in a couple of weeks, you're down there by yourself. And I even had mirrors that I'd hand-painted myself in colors that didn't exist from the factory. And uh, when you have to throw every one of those lures till you find the right one, it can be a long day. Once you find them, you can hammer them once you find that right color. But when you're throwing the wrong color, you could blow it off. And see, everything we hear about bay trout is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. And I accept that fact. I don't denounce that fact or disagree with that whatsoever. I'm telling you out there in that surf, it matters, buddy. And in the summer when they're hitting topwaters, it's the same way. If you don't have the right colored topwater, you might as well throw a beer opener at them. But the old men believe that you had the tide runners, which was the basis of the trout in the surf. Then you had an accessory population of trout that were gulf trout, and they never came in. They stayed out there for whatever reason, and the biggest of the big tended to be gulf trout. You know, you know what else might support that argument is at least further up the coast. Every time I fillet a, a uh, not every time, most times I fillet a surf trout, it's very easy to find in the tissue. A lot, you know, plenty there'll be plenty of worms in the tissue. Hardly ever see that in the bay trout yeah. up north, which tells me it's more of a product of the environment where they spend most of their life in. You don't see so. many worms in the trout down here in the surf. You don't. No. Now McBride has studied those trout fanatically his whole life. And he says that I'm correct in my presumptions. However, he says there's two other kinds of trout. And the one is trout that are born in the bay, like it in the bay, get what they need in the bay, and don't ever leave the bay. And then he says there's a fifth population. And that is a bunch of scatterbrained ones that just run back and forth to make everybody in their data crazy. Follow the bait. I mean, that's yeah. what makes sense is they're just sure. go where they But are. I've had fishermen tell me, and you've seen it, David, that they'd see a hundred big trout coming at Fence Canal Point, and they'd have to chase them and try to get ahead of them. And they were running that south shoreline. And it might be black brush before they ever caught them. Mm-hmm. Or corrales because they're moving so fast. Yeah. And they're in mass. Yeah. And so, but yeah. that troubles me that we have lost that winter population of trout. And that our numbers are down steeply in the summer. I think that is indicative of something wrong with the natural cycle. 
You don't think it's more pressure? Oh, there's more pressure everywhere. You know, everybody says, where's the trout? I go there in the ice chest, dude. Yeah. I ain't never had one jump out of the ice chest and hit a lure. But when the croaker fishing began to gain such notoriety in the bays, it showed up on the beach. And especially people that just had two-wheel drives and fishing the first 10 miles or so of fins began to have these very elaborate aerator systems and working them trout hard in the surface well. And uh, I don't guess anybody will ever convince me that that hasn't hurt the fishery. Well, you know, it's very interesting to me. I lived in a little travel trailer alongside Coastway Bait Stand when they outlawed gill nets and all that. I was privy to sit there and listen to the commercial fishermen screaming and hollering. And then when they uh, when they started the croaker deal, the deal on the croaker started thusly. The bay shrimpers were concerned about CCA and the Texas saltwater fishermen, sport fishermen, being negative toward their bycatch. Everybody knew the best trout bait was piggy perch. They knew the reason was because they grunted. They were also harder to come by. So the shrimpers said, well, we catch the hell out of croakers. They grunt. How about if we bring you the croakers and give them to you? We know they're hard to they're keep catching alive. them anyways. Yeah, yeah. We know they're hard to keep alive. We will bring you the croakers for free. What dies dies. What you manage to sell, see if you can make it profitable. And that is how that started was in hopes of getting the monkey off the back of their bycatch. Mm -hmm. Double jeopardy. Yeah. Huh? You know, my thoughts on that are uh, with croakers, I don't, personally, I don't care how people, what they do to catch fish. I just want people to fish. But I think we're missing out on an entire fishery. If we would allow these croaker to get to a catchable size, that's just a wonderful fish to catch oh, yeah. for the for the dinner table arguably better than a redfish mm -hmm. and oh it uh, is better than a redfish you guys i'm sure you Much guys better. grew up catching oh. some nice golden croaker and uh absolutely uh, don't see that that was one of those seasons you know sure it was croaker season. marbles and kites well we had spanish mackerel season was usually off of jetties in uh april and then uh we'd get that fall run on those golden croakers and my gosh you know Approaching four and a half pounds, Man. and uh, that's just a, a gone fishery. 1977, I think it was, maybe 78, Karen Metter, mm -hmm. Paige Campbell. Campbell, and I were doing a creel survey. Karen and Paige are former biologists. Former with 
Parks with Coastal. Yeah, I was a biologist. They were my technicians. We took a break from Woody's Bait Stand and went down to the South J.D.'s there at Port Aransas, and it was one of those November classic days, a little bit crisp, uh, good dark green, kind of trout green color to the water, and those uh, croaker were in both sides, channel side and the gulf side, just going crazy. We didn't we didn't carry cameras back in the days, but we walked out on the jetties probably a couple hundred yards, and those big the, the croaker were throwing themselves up onto the rocks as the as the waves would break and strand them up there. They were changing colors. They were doing exactly what the redfish was doing. And everybody that had anything was just hauling them in two at a time. And that's the, I've written about this. I said, that has got to be the last croaker run there ever was in this part of the coast was that year. Another first that I remember, also with Parks and Wildlife, I think I saw one of the last sawfish ever captured down here. And I was working at the Y Fish Market. We were going in and measuring catches. At this time, we were doing this uh, November, December flounder time. And I was in there measuring uh, flounder. And uh, uh, in in this huge pile of gig flounder was uh, like a three-foot sawfish. And I wrote wrote about that, too, somewhere back in the day with Roy Swanner. said, I think I saw one of the last sawfish in my lifetime that mm -hmm. was ever landed around here. It was stuck with a gig. So uh, those are real How land. big was the, I don't know what you, the uh, Probably two and a half feet long. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was, it was gig, just like the wow. founder were. So I think it's what's neat about Billy and me talking so much, I think, of the real changes in, in environment and resources, we can almost put down to a date because we, yeah. we saw it before and we saw those subtle changes, never realizing at the time what we were seeing. Yeah, yeah. But that day was kind of the last day that ever happened. And that just happens to be with us who were going to be turning 70 on our next birthdays. Yeah. I'm a little bit older than this guy by about you two look months. At, you I look, look at, at you. I know, I know. I've, I've heard that before. Yeah. So I remember um, we were at uh, fishing off when uh, Packery was a drawbridge. That was our. Uh, it was Omo Channel. I'm sorry, Omo Channel was a drawbridge. Yeah. That was our big croaker hole. And they had those little aprons off to the side. It was a swing bridge. And you could walk out there and fish. And we were catching those croak. You used a piece of shrimp to catch the first one. And you caught all the rest of them all night on a piece of croaker. Just croaker. Cut yeah. a little thumbnail yeah. piece of croaker and catch them all night. And Papa had a little old six-foot stringer. Wouldn't hardly go to the water. So he went over to the bait stand and bought a 12-foot stringer. And he and my brother and I were loading them croaker just as hard as we could on that string stringer. And then when we got ready to go, my brother and I were both young and stout. We picked it up and broke the stringer. <laughs> and all them croaker went back in the water. 
It's one believe, of those little. I believe we got our butts whooped for that. Styrofoam float with that little yeah. skinny blue thin nylon. Yeah. 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 POS. We POS had so many sure. croaker on it, we busted it. I did notice in the latest issue of Gulf Coast Connections, they have a picture of a three and a half pound croaker that somebody caught. And uh, you know, when Buddy Golf was here, he went down to the uh, Caesar Chavez deal and investigated several different things that they were working on. He reported on it. And one thing they were studying was the croaker. And they said that the overutilization of the croaker for bait had impacted its life cycle. And the croaker no longer lived as long as or got as big as it used to because it wasn't going to live long enough to need that yeah, ability. And mature earlier. Yeah, yes, all sir. of that, yeah. Sure did. They said he shrunk in size and his lifespan has shrank because of the overutilization of space. Well, that's kind of a natural phenomenon in science that that does tend to happen. I'd never heard of it happening that not Quickly. that fast. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I remember I, I was working with an archaeologist, uh, I'll, I'll say, that was doing some digs back here on the Chapman Ranch and back in through some of the creeks and brought me some odaliths. And uh, I, I didn't know what they were. So uh, I was Bob Clure and I were pretty good buddies back in the day, and he was Mr. Scale, Mr. Odalith, the reader guy. And I took those up to Bob, and he said they were definitely croaker, gold croaker and uh atlantic croaker and that they were in the uh six to seven maybe even eight pound range and those came out of indian middens so it kind of tells us you know big croaker or something very much a natural part of our environment at one time and for whatever reason bringing it on forward down to shrimpers catching them Maybe in too big a numbers, uh, everything's changed. Another fishery I was just thinking of that doesn't exist anymore, and uh, Spanish mackerel was a real draw, wow, uh, was the gaff top fishery and the channel, ship channel at Port Aransas. We'd live on those North Eddies, pier rats. You mentioned beach rats. We were also, there were also pier rats. Oh, yeah. And you were one of them, too. Yes, I We'd live out there for weeks on end and eat Vienna's spam. <laughs> I still like spam, believe it or not. I still don't for <laughs> the very same reason. <laughs> yeah. The thing about spam I don't like is a guy that eats it and grins a lot. It's got a lot of really nasty-looking teeth. <laughs> I had a boss that did that. Uh, we would fish tarpon piers and then at night we'd go down and fish between where the ferries are now and uh, turtle cove back in there was beach nice beach and my goodness i mean it was a specific fishery it'd be 15 20 cars down there rod holders and everything everybody was fishing for those giant gaff tops and I, I don't remember, I mean, some of those, I don't know what the state record is now. I imagine 11, 12 pounds, something like that. But a 10-pounder was not uncommon at all. And a 5-pounder was kind of, well, that's a little one. We'll keep it anyway. Oh, just using big, god-awful, it's almost the biggest squid you could get. Right. 
and you just th use it like a 10 aught uh, tarpon hook, wrap them around that. The bigger, the better, and throw it out there. And if you had two drops on there, you'd have two of those seven, eight pound gaff tops. You hear occasionally of a, I think up in Galveston, they're still doing pretty good in that system on gaff top. But Matagora, boy, too. Boy, that's yeah, gone. Matagora's way down here. I just, one of, no see him. One of my um, uh, former, well, he's still with Parks and Wildlife, my buddies, Mike Stahl. He did a, a research project on the gut contents of of gaff top. Basically, they'll, they'll eat anything, anything, anything. Found a condom in one of them. Oh, I mean, it just goes to show you they don't care. What, just a vacuum cleaner. They just pick it all up. Off the they'll, hit a, they'll hit a top water as quick as a skipjack will. Never caught one on a top oh, water. Oh, yeah. You find the birds in the spring. You find the birds working over on the east side of uh, Corpus Christi Bay. You throw out there, and you're hung up instantly on top waters with those gaff tops. I've never eaten one. I heard they're good they're to good, eat, but I've never tried and, one. And, you know, that's always been kind of the thing. Uh, you know, gaff top is a good table fare, and a lowly hardhead is not worth anything. I, I, I beg to differ on that. I mean, I, I would doubt their feeding habits are any different. I, and I've eaten quite a bit of hardhead in, in the day, only because that's all we had. But... Uh, I don't know. The gaff top is certainly not here in the numbers that they were when I, I was wondered, a teenager. You know, up at I was pulling the panga up to Matagora and shark fishing in uh uh West Matagora and Saint San Carlos Saint what's the bay right this side of West Matagora? Saint Charles? Is it yeah, I guess it is. That's right. Or, what? No, not so. Or, or Espirito Santo. Espirito Santo. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of bull sharks up there. You can catch them out of a boat pretty easy. They're not giants, but there's a lot of them. But uh, uh, my customers, I just get one of those worm puzzler rigs and put on a spinning rig. And they for something for them to do while we drifted for shark fishing. And they would catch two. We call them super slimes. They would constantly have two big gaff tops on, mm. and they just work you to death. And I wondered why there is, a, if they want to catch something commercially, why isn't someone utilizing mm. this resource? Well, but there's no, see, there's no. almost no bait shrimping going on up there anymore, like there was. Yeah. And in Espiritu uh, Santos, there isn't any at all. And... Also, you've got freshwater input up there that we don't have here. But I'd see shrimp jumping when we'd be up there fishing. Apparently, there's a lot of shrimp up there. Mm. And that's what I figured it was. It was just uh, the food was available. But, boy, they're up there. I'd always We'd always catch them under birds. Yeah. Hoping we'd get trout and we'd come across yeah, gaffed yeah. up all the time. Yeah. Well, do you guys have any... You mean concluding thoughts? I think we're going to have to, uh, if y'all are up for a round two sometime, I know y'all have got plenty more to share. Well, I think kind of seeing where we're going with all this, uh, it, it kind of as I anticipated, I think another session would be be uh, required 
to I feel like we just kind of scratched up. the surface with yeah. y'all's historical perspective. I mean, and Billy's really got some, some good stuff. I'm sitting here trying to think, uh, oh, yeah, Billy, tell us other. <laughs> got, <laughs> got another story here. What about that time? Uh, and a lot of it is uh, definitely not not printable, but uh, it's part of the esteemed captain here. Oh. You know, I was at a boat show in Houston one time, and these three linebacker-looking young Cowboys walked up, had them skull can uh, marks on their britches. And they, uh, one of them said, what does it take to do what you do? I said, what? They, they said, yeah, do what you do down yonder. What does it take? I said, well, first off, you have to have no ambition whatsoever. <laughs> Second is if you got a good-looking woman, go on and run her off now. And get you an ugly one because she's going to leave anyway. <laughs> and third is, if you got a mortgage on a home, go ahead and bounce that back and find you an old used trailer house. And this one looked at the other two and says, we can do that. <laughs> I said, you know what the scary part is, boys? I believe you can. <laughs> That's just the way it's been. But I told him, that one says, same kids, he said, how big a fish have you caught? I said, boy, I've caught fish so big, I don't even have to lie about it. <laughs> and his jaw dropped, and he said, my God, he's caught fish so big, he ain't even got to lie about them. <laughs> they were most taken with you. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, can do that. <laughs> well, there's certainly, like I mentioned, uh, when we when we started this thing, um, whether you guys admit to it or not, you're I'm sitting with a couple of legends here, and uh, I, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy what y'all what y'all have to share now. You can and take all that legend stuff in a quarter and buy a good nickel cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We just happened to be of the right age. It was doing the kind of stuff we're talking about at that time. And that that's a, another part of this whole thing. You know, back when we were doing what we did, there were very few people that did what we did. That's right. That's true. I mean, you go to in the a hard freeze in the middle of Con Brown Harbor and all those trout are in there, there'd be five or six other boats. Uh Beach fishing, uh, you know, you may not see a, a truck on that beach for 40 miles before you'd see another camp. And now it's like Baffin Bay yeah. on the on the North Shore or the South Shore. There's not sure. room to pull in. And we knew without. the life story of everybody that went and, by us. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was just a great big world. And I, I remember this. I read about it, and I probably, I remember it happening was... The space race kind of culminated and came together in 1956. And almost overnight, our homework got just went from just sitting in class and making A, all of a sudden we're doing damn homework, you know. And it was kind of like trying to keep up with the Russians, you know, and the space race and all that kind of stuff. And I still, growing up with grandparents who were both born in the 1800s, I've got a lot of 1800s in me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And 
1950s were not that much different than the 1800s in this part of the world. It was just starting to change a little bit there in the mid to late 50s. And, you know, it changed in little bits and pieces. And then 1970s came, and, yeah, there were a few more dudes doing that, but you still had your little secret spots nobody else knew about. And, boy, we blew into the 80s, and, uh, damn, there's just getting to be a lot of people down here, no, no matter where you're talking about. And then the 90s, it's just all a blur after that. It just, uh, just. Technology had a lot to do with that. Lot, lots. Technology and information. Yeah. We had to learn by doing it or a close acquaintance teaching us. And now you do is just search internet. And if you read enough, you will learn a certain percentage. I mean, you got to read through a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. But there's some good information in there, too. Yeah. Information yeah. it took lifetimes to acquire. Remember, you know, in high school, junior high, we had 100 hundred something graduate very very big class for the time all baby boomers but uh you were kind of known for something that you did and it was fishing was what i was known for and oh very, you were the surfer dude well surfer <laughs> too but i really it was water but uh very few other people in my class even fished right. they didn't do it because they didn't grow up doing it a few hunted deer few hunted ducks and things like that but we came along and just happened to come from uncles and families fathers whatever that did that and we fell in and and did it all the while their more population was getting bigger more people or a few others like us and blah blah and here we go now where you're selling just as many boats in january to new boat owners as you're selling in july you know what the bottom line is to me the pie doesn't get any bigger. It's the amount of servings that have to be made from that's, that pie yeah, has point. just yeah. increased exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, very true. Very true. That's a, a good uh, a good analogy to everybody's piece gets smaller and yeah, we have to do yeah. what we can to conserve it. Thank you, gentlemen.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. As Captain Sandiford mentioned, if you're interested in helping out with the Big Shell cleanup, the easiest way to find out more information on that is to go to the website friendsofpadre.com. Again, the cleanup is this coming weekend on the 25th of February, which is a Saturday. It starts at 8 a.m. Volunteers will get into the park for free and will be given t-shirts while supplies last. Trash bags are provided. Lunch is provided afterwards. So again, go to friendsofpadre.com to find out more information on the Big Shell Cleanup. Tune in next week. We're going to head over to uh, University of Texas Marine Science Institute in Port Aransas and talk to Dr. Lee Fuman and Jeff Kaiser, and they're going to let us know about some of the research projects that are going on there and talk about the fisheries in that area. Thanks again, folks. Check you out next week, and stay coastal.